What's up, everybody? Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Brady Quinn Football Show! Featuring Will Brinson. I'm Will Brinson. This is the Pick 6 Podcast. Brady Quinn has uh, moved to Thursdays. I don't know. We're just sort of figuring it out as we go through the playoffs um, and trying to get our schedule going. This is the CBS Sports Daily NFL Podcast, Monday through Friday in your inbox. Um, for those wondering why we might record the day before, like you, Brady, wondering why, why you don't get your stuff up on Wednesday, it's because we're trying to please the people who have to commute. Um, also, if you're just joining us from the Fantasy Football Today podcast, thanks for stopping by. I appeared with Jamie Eisenberg there. Uh, greatly appreciate you hanging out. We'll have some awesome football talk tomorrow on Friday. We'll have our picks podcast with Pete Prisco, RJ White, Nick Costos, and myself. We were doing a fictional $1,000 budget to gamble with during the playoffs, and we were all up money in the first week. How impressive. That's where you, Brady, are supposed to be like, wow, I'm so impressed. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's. That's really impressive. It's more shocking, to be honest with me, that you, you nitwits were all actually able to win money with your bets. That's uh, the more shocking part of it all. That was the very surprising part of it. Pete's like, Pete was like, if I hadn't, if I had, if Seattle hadn't gone for two, I'd be up huge. I'd be killing it. It's like, Pete, just shut up. Uh, anyway, you can win money listening to that podcast. <laughs> but today we're going to talk about the coaching hires that have uncorked over the last uh, 48 hours or so. It's been a very busy stretch. Um, we talked some with Jason Lockenfour about that on Wednesday. But Brady and I are going to take a deep dive into Cliff Kingsbury, Freddie Kitchens, Matt LaFleur, Bruce Arians, Vic Fangio. And that's all the people that have been hired. There are still vacancies in uh, in three different cities. We won't mess with those teams um, because I don't feel like thinking about who they are. The Jets, we, the Jets, the Dolphins. We, and, we might dabble. The, the, the Jets and the Mike McCarthy situation is interesting because yeah, that's, yeah, we he dabble. basically said that's the only job he wants. Yeah, no, I, I, all right, we'll dabble in the Jets. We'll dabble in the Jets and talk about that. And then we'll, uh, we'll go through and preview the matchups for the divisional round. I have some, uh, exciting questions that I want you to answer, Brady. But first, let's talk about Cliff Kingsbury. JLC, Lock and Four, I'll put him on blast and said that this is a potential back to back one and done. Um, if things go south, there is some justification here in, in, in ripping the Kingsbury hire because he was fired by Texas Tech several months ago, uh, with a 35 and 40 record. He then was the OC at, at, at USC for like 17 or 18 minutes. And now he is the Arizona Cardinals head coach with no coaching experience. You like the hire though, right? Yeah, I like the hire and I like the fit uh, for a few reasons. Uh, one, because I actually know a little bit about this. I think that's the problem with like a lot of the hot takes we're getting right now, and even for people who are in our profession, they don't know anything about Cliff Kingsbury. And they don't know anything about the situation at Texas Tech, and, and they're not looking forward. All they're doing is looking back. And so I'm not surprised by JLC you know, saying that because I don't think he has any clue uh, about Cliff Kingsbury, how he really prepared you know, his team and how he sees things. Like i got to be honest with you, from you know, sitting in production meetings with him, from, from getting to know him, I always felt like every time I sat in a meeting with him, I was like, this guy should be in the NFL. He should be a play call in the NFL and eventually a head coach because of how he looks at things and really the things that limited him at Texas Tech. Mm. So for starters, if, if you look at what impacted his career more than anything else, if you had flipped the way his career started where he won the most games in his first year and that was how they finished this year, he'd still be the head coach because he started off with these sky-high expectations that – he was going to be able to carry a lot of what Mike Leach was able to do during his time at Texas Tech, that Cliff Kingsbury is going to be able to replicate that because he was a descendant of the air raid system. Here's what happened. Texas Tech all of a sudden had to compete with Baylor and TCU, who not only joined the Big 12, but also became kind of difficult to compete against in regard to recruiting. And the other thing that I think hurt them too is not only did Texas A&M, once they switched to the SEC, they started to pull recruits from Texas. And then so what that meant was, Texas wasn't getting all the same recruits they normally would and dominated the state of Texas. They were taking recruits that maybe Texas Tech would have gotten, as well as, you know, Baylor and TCU. So all of a sudden, the landscape of getting those talented defensive players that they really needed in order to be successful started getting drained. Now, one thing that you can't even, uh, you know, breeze over, pass over is the offensive brilliance. Not only one could he identify talented quarterbacks who had the ability to throw the football, but he could coach them up. 
and he's always had creative, innovative offenses. You saw that in Houston with Case Keenum. You saw that during his time with Texas A&M and Johnny Manziel. You saw in Texas Tech, Baker Mayfield, Davis Webb, Patrick Mahomes. And a lot of people would then say, well, why did they win more games? Again, did you see that defense that he unfortunately had to deal with? There's a lack of talent. Um, there, there's a huge gap between that. He went through a number of different coordinators trying to find somebody who could help give them a better shot, um, but, but it ended up not working out. And unfortunately for David Gibbs, the defensive coordinator, really hung around the last few years. They did start to make improvements. The issue then became, especially this year, injuries at the quarterback position. They went through three different quarterbacks this year, and that ultimately was kind of the nail in the coffin for him at Texas Tech, uh, where he ended up being 35 and 40, I think, in his career. But those are some of the difficulties in college that you don't have to deal with that in the NFL. Because guess what? The Cardinals have a lot of salary cap. They have not only the number one overall pick, but you, I mean, they don't need a quarterback. So technically you could trade back, maybe get another first round pick and maybe have multiple in this upcoming year's draft. And they've got a roster that's loaded with some talented players. Chandler Jones, a one defensive end, Patrick Peterson, a cornerback, Booter Baker's a stud. Hassan Reddick has come along. You look at their offense, Christian Kirk before his injury this year was having a great year. David Johnson's is still a piece you can build off of along with Chase Evans in the backfield. I could go on and on. I mean, they've got some pieces. The issue this year was the injuries on their offensive line. So I think the one that protection is going to be better for Josh Rosen. You're going to see him play better. You're going to see Cliff bring this creative, innovative offense, and it's going to be a better fit. So that's why I think this is something that is more outside-the-box thinking, but it's going to be hammered by a lot of people who don't know what the hell they're talking about because they can't look forward. They're only looking back at his previous head coaching record at Texas Tech. And, And mind you, the type of thinking that JLC brings up, or anyone else for that matter who wants to bash the hire, they're the same guys that probably would have bashed, I don't know, a coach that was 36 and 44 in his first stop as a head coach in the NFL. Oh, that guy, oh, it's Bill Belichick when he went to New England. <laughs> that was his win-loss record before he went there. There was another guy, too. He started off 6-10 and 10 and got one year. He was one and done. He got fired with the New York Jets. Let's see. Oh, that was Pete Carroll. And then he got hired by the Patriots, had some success, still not good enough there, got fired. And ultimately had to go to USC and then back up to Seattle where he's been to two Super Bowls and won one. So, again, this is partially the problem, I think, with reporting and people who are talking about this kind of stuff is, is they don't know. Like, they don't have contacts. They don't know the guy. They've never really met him. They don't understand how they operate. And they don't see how it could potentially work. So, I think this is definitely something that could work. The problem is, is how much patience are they willing to give him? You know, it didn't work with Steve Wilkes. You know, and so you made that decision to be one and done with him. But to then make it a one-and-done with, with Cliff Kingsbury, it's un, it's, it was unfair to Wilkes. It's unfair to him, too, because they, they still do, do need to do something with not only the salary cap money they have uh, and the draft pick, but also that roster. There's going to be some changeover. They need to figure out who's going to be the defensive coordinator. That's a huge piece in all of this. Um, and, and so once they figure that out, then you can figure out how that's going to relate to this roster and how that can be competitive again. But I think this is something that could definitely work out. But, again, I always preach patience, and for some reason, NFL owners, uh, they're anything but these days. Yeah, no, NFL owners are, are horrible at patience. I, a couple of thoughts on, on what you said. I, look, I think you have good thoughts. I hope that everybody – or good good thoughts. I think you have good thoughts, Brady. No, I think I think you made very good points about it. And you have like I, you have spent a lot of time with Cliff Kingsbury, not just in your production meetings, but, you know, the, the monthly well, can, monthly handsome ex-college quarterback meetings right. that you guys go to. Can, can I ask you Can I ask you this as well, too? Because everyone's going to say, well, he's never been in the NFL. Yeah. Like, that's another argument that I hear for it. And then I say to him, well, actually, he played three years. Like, once you say that's pretty invaluable experience, yes. and you don't think he, that he's had NFL teams consulting with him for years now? I mean, it's not only one asking about Patrick Mahomes or Baker Mayfield. They're also asking about his offense. Like, we act like Lincoln Riley's the only coach that teams go to consult with and talk to. It, it, it's also Cliff Kingsbury. No, they, I mean, he, he's been like, doing it for years. Last six years, he's been top five in offensive production. Yeah. So uh, people have been talking to him for a while. He played three years as a quarterback for New England for a year, for the Jets for a year, and for the Saints for a year. Those are two of the three pretty solid organizations. So he also has that in his back pocket. Like, I, I don't understand that thought process is where you're looking at him saying, well, he's never been in the NFL. I think he can handle that portion of it because he does have prior playing experience, which Sean McVay didn't have. Sean McVay didn't even have head coaching experience and not even that much play calling experience. Matt LaFleur has had one year of play calling experience. He's the head coach of Green Bay right now. Like, if, if you wouldn't have bashed that, like, that would make more sense in my mind than sitting here and bashing a guy who at least has head coaching experience leading men 
on a football team and also played a little bit too. Like it's not like he, the NFL is all of a sudden completely foreign to him. These guys have been coming to him for a while and he actually played in it. So he understands the perspective that Josh Rosen has as a, as a quarterback going into his second year. Okay. A couple, just a couple of thoughts here. One, um, I, I agree. You have to be more patient. They should have been more patient with Steve Wilkes. I, I, under, I, I mean, like, right. and I thought, I, I thought that they should have got, moved on from Steve Wilkes, but the, the, they went into the Steve Wilkes experiment just expecting like, all right, we'll bring in this guy who's never coached before, who's a defensive guy. And they didn't have any construct of what they were going to do from a personnel standpoint and building it out. It felt more like it might have been imposed by ownership. This very much feels like Steve Kine, the GM, is owning this. And Steve Kine spent a lot of time watching Texas Tech games because he was recruit- he was he was interested in Patrick Mahomes before the 2017 draft. He wanted Mahomes into Sean Watson, and they didn't trade up, and they got sniped. Sniped, and um, and as a result, you know, he. he he has a lot of not a lot of knowledge about Cliff Kingsbury, so he's got that going for him. Um, I, I think that if you were creating somebody, if, if you if you brought Steve Wilkes into a room and you said, "Hey, I want you to create the opposite of Steve Wilkes from scheme to personality to demeanor to just everything, just create the polar opposite of him," that somebody might create Cliff Kingsbury because I mean he is the exact opposite of Steve Wilkes. Who uh, you know Kingsbury's got you know the the enthusiasm of a college coach, um, you know offensive minded guy wants to play up tempo. I, I do worry a little bit. And, and this is where, again, it's, it's going to be on Steve Kime. He's going to have to own this hire because he was, Kingsbury was asked about his press conference, which was going on right when we started recording this. He said, you know, who are you going to, who are you going to hire on defense? And he was like, I'm leaning on Steve Kime for that. I, he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of defensive contacts. How do you think he fills out his staff? Having not worked in the NFL, I mean, does that does that make a difference? Um, does Kime have enough contacts there where you think he can make it work? Uh, does he go and get you know his buddies from college? How, how do you think that works for a guy who's a first time you know NFL coach altogether? Newsflash for everyone who just follows the NFL and thinks that like those are the the best minds in football. No, they're, not. they're not right. Sure, that's fine. They're not. It's a buddy system. Okay, yeah. here's how it works. You, you want to know why a lot of coaches that come from the college level up to the NFL level or why even first-time head coaches end up hiring other coaches who have previously coached in the NFL? Because the games are so different, and a lot of times their agents who are helping them fill out their staff or potentially some in the front office, they have other buddies or connections. And they want those coaches to understand the difference between college, the NFL, and then the, the different nuances that come along with that. So that's typically why you see that. But to sit there and say college guys can't adjust or adapt to it, it's it's just it's mind-boggling sometimes when people have that opinion because there are the college game at the NFL or excuse me the, the college offenses that you have to stop at that level are much more difficult <clears throat> than trying to stop you know these NFL offenses wow. right and there's different reasons why I would say that for starters. You're allowed for an ineligible player to be downfield three yards in, in college football. Right. Do you know how hard it is to try to teach a linebacker or a second-level defender to try to read on the run-pass option whether or not they should play run or whether or not they should play the pass? <laughs> that's, that's two additional yards at the NFL level, okay? And then other thing, the field is naturally divided. It naturally divides your defenses and forces guys to have to play in space because of how wide the hashes are. And it gives the offense easier throws into the boundary and more space to, to utilize to then get guys open and to create easier one-on-one matchups where defenses can't rely on leverage. So for that, the, for those two reasons in particular, and then on top of that, you know, you, you've got the ability to run guys and out this, this fast pace and so forth because you've got these expanded rosters. So you can rotate those guys all game long at wide receiver and continually move at a really, really fast pace. You can't do that in the NFL because you have a limited roster size. So, so for one, looking at guys from the college level, even if he was to bring them up to be his D coordinator, I have no problem with it, okay? And players won't either. When you're genuine with them, when you're honest, when you're just you know, telling them the truth and coaching them and helping them get better, players respect you regardless of whether you played or not, whether, whatever your experience is. If you could teach them something, if you could show them you're prepared and you've got a plan to win – they're going to follow, they're going to listen, and they're going to try to execute that to the best of their level. So, you know, regardless of where the D.C. comes from, not as much of a concern for me as long as it's a good hire and it's a good defensive mind, regardless of what level. And it's not a concern for me either about whether or not he can lead these guys because he's closer in age to some of them in the locker room and all that, which is even a farce there because 
you know, the NFL is younger than ever now. Average age is like 25 years old or something like that. And and then the the last thing I'll kind of just touch on is in regards to um, just you know looking at the way teams tend to look at you know their coaching staffs and how they're filled out and and you know people talking about Steve Kime making the hire. But Steve, this is Steve Kime's last hire. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he was desperate to hire Cliff Kingsbury. They jumped on him. If they weren't going to hire him, the Jets were going to hire him. So Steve Kime clearly is putting his livelihood on the line by hiring Cliff Kingsbury. He knows how much of an important decision this is. So if you think Steve Kahn's done a good job in, in finding some pieces and building up some of that roster and making some good decisions, which I think he has throughout the course of time there, then, then how are you going to knock his decision to bring this guy in? Just because of you know, who, how Steve Wilkes was hired, which you don't even know if that was all him or if it was the front office or who was on. So the, the, the last portion of that is you know, I, I think it, it's an interesting hire, but it's one that Steve Kahn must feel pretty – confident and if he's or if he's willing to make that decision at this point in time in his career no I, I look i think there is no doubt that steve kime has to be feeling some heat from ownership um last year was a disaster you don't like when you own a football team let's say even if mike bidwell even if the steve wilkes thing was his idea he's not owning it like when you own a football team you don't take ownership of the bad hire you put you Put that off on somebody below you. That's just how business is and how, and how the game of football works. So like, we don't, we don't know whose ultimate call it was to, to land Steve Wilkes. I do think that there was something intelligent about the way the Cardinals went about this. Um, in 2013, when they hired Bruce Arians, they sat around and waited and waited and, and, and were patient about their process and got lucky that Bruce Arians ended up, they ended up clicking with Bruce Arians. They did the same thing last year with Steve Wilkes and got very unlucky because there was a, there wasn't a great pool of candidates. They couldn't find anybody. They ended up with Wilkes. Here they pounced on Kingsbury. And look, I, I think Steve Kime is a smart football guy. He is, he is, he's drafted, um, you know, I think he's done a, I wouldn't say he's, I wouldn't say he's been a, I think he's been an above average drafter, but he you know, certainly has missed on some offensive line issues. I, I guess, but I think that he knows the game. And if he's willing to put his life, like you said, put his livelihood on the line for Cliff Kingsbury, I'll give it a shot and trust it. I just think there's a lot of inherent risk and a lot of red flags from a football perspective, well, Brady. How is he going to make Josh Rosen work behind a completely non-existent offensive line? Well, that, that was more because of injury this year. I mean, those guys are going to be returning back. Sure. So once they're healthy, I think it'll be a completely different story. That off the line before they started suffering the injuries wasn't that bad. Um, so if they can give them some protection, I think they can still beat people. I mean, look, this is, a, this is an offense that was decimated and went up and beat Green Bay in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers. So it, it's not like they can't get it done. The defense can still play. This offense still has playmakers. We don't know what Larry Fitzgerald's going to do, um, but – at the end of the day, I mean, those, they're still, they got some playmakers. They can get it done. They just need to get healthy and then allow those young guys who got thrust into play way before they were ready to continue to develop and, and then, you know, continue to build upon that depth with this draft class or free agent class uh, moving forward. I do want to point out one other thing, though. Cause would you say Bruce Arians, would you say that kind of worked during his time with the Cardinals? Uh, I mean, he was pretty successful, right? That's why he's now the head coach of the Tampa Bay Bucks. Yeah, it's a segue. Which I want to get to the fact that he, you know, this job became open, and Bruce Arians left supposedly because of health conditions, right? Yeah, why would yeah, you yeah, hire him back? But yeah, you, you can answer that in a second because I, I want to point out one thing. He so Bruce Arians became the interim head coach for the Colts, right? Due to um, the health issues with Chuck Pagano. The interesting thing though is, do you know what Bruce Arians? You know when he, when he was previously a head coach before that? I do know. Do you mean answer? Or you, is okay. this a rhetorical question? Yeah, you can answer. Uh, Temple. Right. And do you know what his win-loss record was there? Wait, why are you not? You, you should be more blown away that I knew it was Temple. You didn't think I was going to know that. There's no way you thought I would know that. Well, the point is, what was his <laughs> win-loss record at Temple? Uh, I don't know. It probably wasn't good, but I know he wore some awesome plaid pants at Temple. Do you mean to tell you? Right. What? 19 and 30, I believe. 19 and 30. All right, all right. So actually worse win-loss percentage than what Cliff Kingsbury had. But <laughs> all of a sudden, because he took over a team for Chuck Pagano because of health issues that was led by Andrew Luck at a time when the AFC South was abysmal and won some games, we're all assuming that that's what they based that hire off of. But Bruce Arians was really building to that moment where he took over as the head coach. But it all started at the college level when he didn't really succeed. So just another example of kind of a guy that, yeah, he may have shown it for a short amount of time with Indy, but, you know, even Indy making that decision with Bruce Arians to make him the interim head coach when Pagano left, 
what other head coaching experience were they basing it off of? Well, they're truly basing it off of you know Temple, even though he'd been a play caller for a while. I, I'm just saying, regardless of what you want to say, if people want to start throwing out facts about win loss record and all that stuff, and try to look at that as an indicator for the future, uh, again, you're not you're not looking at the right stuff. You have to look at the fit and how it's going to work. So anyway, I, I, I still find the whole thing about this fascinating that no one's really talking about Bruce Arians coming out of retirement to take the Tampa Bay Bucks job. And yet the job that he left is open, but he's supposed to be left due to health issues. Like they didn't need to tr- swap a sixth and seventh round pick to get the rights for Bruce Arians. Like couldn't they have just interviewed Bruce Arians or does it speak to maybe the relationship that Steve Kahn and Bruce Arians had at the end? Yeah. I think that that was sort of a, he retired, he had health issues. Maybe uh, he was done there. I, I, I don't know. I think that, I think that was a fracturing, a bit of a fracturing thing with Carson Palmer leaving uh, as well. So you, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I think that the, the, it's one of those where sometimes it's more convenient um, to, to be able to to be able to say he's retiring, et cetera, et cetera, than it is to actually have the conclusion that you would have. Speaking of Bruce Arians, I have some trivia for you. Who has more college rushing yards in their career, Jameis Winston or Bruce Arians? Bruce Arians. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, yes, yeah. The answer. I was like, I was like, man, I really stumped him. Uh, the answer is Bruce you Arians. Should have given me like three or four options. The two options it was too obvious. Well, I'm just trying to point out that Bruce Arians is now coaching Jameis Winston, as he was announced as the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He, had, by the way, had 319 rushing yards at Virginia Tech, including 243 in 1974. Jameis Winston, who only played two years, had 284 rushing yards. They stopped rushing him in 2014. Man, he was. Unbelievable in that 2013 season. He destroyed everybody in college football. But back to Bruce Arians and Tampa Bay. Are you surprised that Bruce Arians, our former colleague, who's with the NFL and CBS, left and, uh, and, and came out of uh, retirement and went and took that Tampa Bay job? No, not surprised at all. I mean, I, I guess unless there's legitimate health concerns or issues. I mean, I, that, that's the whole thing that always like blows my mind. Like, Urban Meyer used it at Florida, then came back, took the Ohio State job. You know, Bruce Arians talked about that. Then he left. Now he stayed at the Tampa Bay job. Gary Kubiak stepped down for the Denver Broncos. Now he's back with the Denver Broncos, play calling as their OC. Like, like the whole thing just I, – I, I'm not – like, I don't want to question someone's integrity or their honesty, but why are we why are we using that? But then we come right back to the same stressful job that apparently almost killed us. So I'm not sure what to make of that, but – um, I'm not surprised by it because if you look at what Todd Munkin was doing this past year with the Tampa Bay Bucks, a lot of vertical passing game. That's why they were so prolific, whether it was Ryan Fitzpatrick or Jameis Winston. So I think a lot of those vertical passing concepts make sense uh, for Jameis Winston. And it's a good pair between Jameis and what they have there in Bruce Arians. I think that's going to work well. Todd Bowles will be his DC. He's getting the band back together. I think that's going to work out uh, well for the defensive side of the football. And it probably pains you to hear this, but if you're looking at a team that can take a jump in the NFC South, I think it's Tampa Bay. Because if he comes in there and can replicate what he did with the Cardinals, you've got the the, the Saints that aren't going to have Drew Brees for that much longer. You've got the Carolina Panthers that if they don't have a good year next year, Ron Rivera could be out. They could be rebuilding. Maybe it's Cam Newton, maybe it's not. But that defensive front's getting old. The defense in general is kind of old. So maybe they take a step back. And then you've got the Atlanta Falcons. And you have to make the case Dan Quinn could be in the hot seat too given the fact that he just fired both coordinators had to restart there. And maybe it's more of an adjustment year like we saw a couple years ago with that offense at Atlanta when Steve Sarkeesian's first year, uh, even though he was Matt Ryan was phenomenal this past year and they still got rid of Sarkeesian. So there could be a potential change going on in the NFC South, and I think Tampa Bay could potentially take a bigger jump than people realize. Quinn, Colin, Bucks to win NFC South in 2019. That's the headline for this uh, podcast. No, didn't, didn't say that. That I, is, I, I uh, just, that's the issue with our society, though, is someone would literally listen to what I just said and then make up that headline. Um, um, like I said, and until Drew Brees retires, uh, I think the Saints right now are in a really good position to own that division. Yeah, I think you're right. I Look, I, I, I think this is a good fit because there is a – uh, Jason Light, the GM, has worked with Bruce Arians before. They were together in 2013 in Arizona uh, when Light was the VP of player personnel under under Kime and, and with the Cardinals when Bruce got hired. Um, you have Jameis Winston, a quarterback, who to me is the perfect fit with Bruce Arians in terms of the no-risk-it, no-biscuit philosophy of 
F it, I'm chunking it deep. Like, unless you could bring in Jay Cutler, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get, you know, like Jay Cutler would maybe be perfect, but Jameis Winston is pretty close. He is willing to, I, like, I always love the way Mike Mayock described him coming out of college. I think it was Mayock, but he said he has no conscience. He's not afraid to throw anything anywhere, anytime. Uh, and that fits with what Bruce Arians wants. And plus, like, look, if this happens and it's a failure, maybe Bruce Arians says, all right, that was a good one year run. I'm out of here. They don't give Jameis Winston a contract. They reboot the whole thing. There's an easy out clause for everybody of 2019 uh, is a disaster, and the and the uh, Glazer family can just reboot it. Let's move to – any other thoughts on Bruce Arians, by the way? We, we spent a long time talking about Cliff Kingsbury, so I don't want to – you know. Well, I, I think I think there's a lot there because everyone's like criticizing the hire. I just think it's interesting when you look at it again, no, no, the, you're about just, the just how Bruce Arians got the job. Yeah, no, 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 I don't, no, no, I'm not, I'm not knocking the amount of time we spent on Cliff Kingsbury. You have a, a high level of knowledge of Kingsbury because he's all his broadcasts were on Fox, and again, you guys spend time together, you know, in the monthly handsome quarterback club. So, I mean, like that's a you, that 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 is a thing. Someone, someone did reach out. They said, "Do you think he got the job because he's good looking?" I'm like, "Well, I don't think it hurt his chance to get the job, but I don't think they based it purely on that." I mean, uh, I, I, look, just, I find those sorts of comments way too funny. I tell me this much. He makes people around him look uh, like look not as good looking. Like I'll put it that way. Like seeing Steve Kahn next to Cliff Kingsbury, you're like, huh, that's interesting. Do you when you when you're with, when you're hanging out with Cliff Kingsbury, do you feel less good looking? Um, I don't. I never really thought about it that way because he's a blonde and more of like a brunette. So I, I just feel like <laughs> we're like a great tandem. Like if we could have been single together, like it would have been, it would have been nasty. It, it would have been like the greatest two on two duo ever. Like, picture um, white men can't jump. Like, picture that sort of tandem, okay? Like Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes, but instead it'd be me and Cliff Kingsbury, and we'd just be having at it, all right? I'll just put it that way. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, you, you'd just be glad you didn't throw me in the mix. Then it would get really ugly. Um, the uh, but, <laughs> uh, I'm kidding, of course. Kingsbury, look, Kingsbury is, as I said, uh, to JLC. He's devastatingly handsome. It's just, he's like hilariously handsome. It's funny. Uh, you go to, that's, that's, uh, that's the biggest issue is both Kingsbury and LaFleur are bad looking guys. I think, I think that's what JLC is upset about. It might be. I, I think he gets upset. He's like, why are these good looking guys teaching these jobs? <laughs> now I have to talk to them and talk about them. I can't stand it. Um, if you go to Kingsbury's Wikipedia page, and I, uh, I use Wikipedia a lot because it has a, I think the, the win loss record is easy to see on there. Um, there's like a photo of him down there like by his Texas Red Raider stint. It's like Kingsbury during open practice in 2013. And it looks like an absolute glamour shot, like right, like either Costas or Ray-Bans on the half zip. And he's just, you know, sort of gazing slightly away from the camera, black and white photo. You know, he's not, he's not coaching, he's modeling. And I want to text it to you. I'll text it to you right now. And you can, you can see it after the, um, you know, after the podcast. Here's the thing it's is just, when you're that good looking, when you're that good looking, it's hard to not always look like your model. But it's just, I'll, I'll, I'll just put it that way. But it's just so ridiculous. It's like Kingsbury during practice. And it's just, he's not practicing. He's, he's, he's handsoming. At, at any rate, um, Matt LaFleur, as you mentioned, also handsome, hired by the Green Bay Packers. They have a tight Brady. They like to hire, uh, young 39 to 46 guys whose first name begin with M and who have limited experience as NFL offensive coordinators. Uh, if you ignore Ray Rhodes in this, you have Mike, uh, uh, of course, Mike Holmgren, Mike Sherman, Mike McCarthy, and now Matt LaFleur, who had one year of play calling, uh, in Tennessee. I think you have a very valid point that there, if you're going to get outraged, about the Cardinals hiring Kingsbury, you should just be just as outraged about the Packers hiring Matt LaFleur because not only does he have less head coaching experience and, I guess, less play-calling experience, but the Titans' offense was terrible last year. Yeah, well... I'm not, uh, I'm not outraged. I'm just saying... If subject. You... No, a few different things on the subject. I mean, Mike McCarthy's offense with the San Francisco 49ers before, the year before he got hired by the Buc- or, uh, Green Bay Packers was like 32nd in the league, right? So... It was pretty bad. So I don't know that they looked at that as far as the criteria, as far as why you'd hire him. And I don't know that teams do that by and large. Uh, this isn't a great example because it didn't work out, whereas Mike McCarthy won a Super Bowl and was the 25th wing, winningest coach of all time. But Vance, Vance Joseph, too, and there's like one year as defensive coordinator in Miami. They were bad. They were like 27th or something like that in the yeah. league. He goes up, knocks out and out of the park, the interview with, with John Owen, the Broncos, gets the head coaching job. So 
you know, a lot of times it just comes down to what I think we're all accustomed to is, you know, you get a certain feeling and intuition when you're around people and, and you just, you tend to listen to them, you interview them. And that's the person you could be working with every day. So as much as you want to want to look at their win loss record and all that and how good they are or how talented they are at their profession, there's also a sense of like, can I envision myself working with this guy? You know, if I'm Mark Murphy, if I'm Brian Gutenkunst, you know, maybe they felt like they really had a good rapport, a solid rapport with Matt LaFleur based on his interview. And, and maybe that, you know, went into it more so than what he was doing in Tennessee. I do know this, though. I do know that whoever is the offensive coordinator in Tennessee, it's not, it wasn't an easy job. Marcus Mariota has never taken the step that he's needed to. And I also feel like there's a lot of questions about his toughness and whether or not he should have played and could have played that final game, that playing game to get into the postseason. Um, so I'll kind of leave that there, but I don't know if they have the roster to really to help out any play caller there. And I think a lot of people looked at what he did as giving the players that he had on that roster the best chance, the team's best chance to succeed. So uh, I'll kind of leave that at that. Mm. In regards to the hire itself, I do find it interesting because Aaron Rodgers was not consulted on this. There's a thought that maybe he was. He wasn't. And, you know, this hire is interesting because you talked about the age of their former hires and what they're kind of looking for. And then really look at the trend of the NFL. Everyone's thinking, okay, we need to bring in this, you know, new, innovative, young offensive mind. And everyone attributed it to, to Sean McVay. People tend to forget McVay worked with Shanahan under him. Like McVay took that offense after Shanahan left and was, was running pieces of that. Like it really stems back to Kyle Shanahan, which his roots go all the way back to Bill Walsh. And the running game, more, you know, it's closer to Alex Gibbs and some of the things that they were doing with, with the outside zone and the, and the boots off of that. So uh, it's a blend of things, and everyone's taken it and done with it, you know, what they want, whether it's McVeigh or LaFleur or even Kyle Shanahan has evolved over his time in San Francisco. Uh, but really it stems from, from Shanahan. But everyone seems to talk about McVeigh because the Rams' success. Uh, but besides that, and besides looking at the trend of what the NFL is trying to do, if, if you're looking at, like, this offense last year, that was static, right? Yeah. And then Mike McCarthy gets fired. Joe Phil becomes his interim head coach. You know what didn't change about the offense? Anything. It stayed <laughs> yeah. static. Yeah. And they didn't have a whole lot of success. So that led me to think this. You know what Aaron Rodgers likes? He likes those static formations. He likes the isolated routes. You know who else liked that? Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning loved having isolated formations so he could read the defense, he could make checks off that, he could base everything off of what he saw, use his cadence, uh, and figure everything out, sometimes based on the alignment of their tight ends and running back, et cetera. But for the most part, he liked more static formations. He felt like that was easier for him to control everything. So maybe it wasn't so much Mike McCarthy. Maybe it was more Aaron Rodgers involved with that. And that'll be an interesting thing moving forward, is you know Matt LaFleur trying to bring a more creative, innovative offense with more stacks and bunches and ways of getting guys open um, with what Aaron Rodgers wants to do. But the biggest key and why I brought up Kyle Shanahan and McVay is, and really the roots stemming back to Bill Walsh, they have a common language. It's, it still traces back to the West Coast offense. So, you know, I think when you looked at the two candidates they were looking at, LaFleur and Josh McDaniels, LaFleur runs more of a West Coast system. That terminology is going to be easier for Rodgers to adjust to, or if LaFleur to adjust to some of what they call it in Green Bay. So it's not an adjustment for Rodgers and the rest of the team. It's more an adjustment for LaFleur. And I think it was easier to do that than Josh McDaniels, who I could promise you probably said, look, this is my offense that I've been running. I was with him with the Denver Broncos. It is drastically different. It's like mm. speaking uh, Spanish and then going out and trying to speak, you know, Italian. There's some things that sound the same, but for the most part, they're two different languages. Um, and that, was, that would be what I would, I would say it is, 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 you know, the difference in trying to operate over in Italy while you're trying to speak Spanish. It just wouldn't work. Maybe some things would be similar and people could kind of understand what you're saying. Uh, but for the most part, you'd have to learn the Italian language. So you, so you, uh, you'd, and, and like, so that made, you'd end up getting like a beer, but you'd probably get robbed too. And like, and, or like end up in like the wrong restaurant. You know what I'm saying? Like you could, you could get some stuff. I, I, I would, I'd attribute, you, you asked for a glass of wine and they gave you a beer. You know, one of those there sorts you of things. You ended up, you ended up with the same product, alcohol. Yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't exactly what you were looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a really good analogy. All right, so, look, I mean, look, and again, I think it's worth noting, and uh, I don't want to – I'm not going to – Chris Chase, RIP, a you know, friend of mine who 
died recently, but um, he, he wrote for USA Today, and he ranked. I'm not trying to bash him. I just pointed out that you know he wrote it. Um, it's been widely shared. In 2016, he ranked the coaching hires, and um, Doug Peterson was seven, and Chip Kelly with the 49ers was one. Uh, you know, Ben McAdoo two. Uh, Hugh Jackson three, uh, Dirk Cutter four, Adam Gase five. It, we don't we don't know how these guys are going to pan out because isn't, I mean isn't it isn't it with coaching? Don't you think it's like with quarterbacks when you're drafted? You know, a talent matters and your leadership skills matter and your ability matters. Of course, all that matters, but situation matters too, right? Yeah, situation matters. Um, and, and look, here's the other portion of it. Like, <laughs> I find it interesting you bring up uh, Chip Kelly, and and for this reason. You know, he changed the way teams practice. They use a different, a lot of teams use his practice schedule. Completely different. He, he changed the way people view the up-tempo offenses, how you spread, you know, spread formations, the RPOs. He changed all of that. Like he's the one who brought it and was like, yeah. yeah, you can still do this and be effective. And, and what was his career record in the NFL? 28 and 35. Now yeah. granted, he's not coaching anymore in the NFL. He's at college and they didn't have a great season this year because he is devoid of talent. Uh, but that kind of proves your, your, your more of your point. He's viewed as one of the most innovative, um, you know, most creative play callers there's been and talent evaluators. And if you sat down and talked with him, he'd blow you away. You'd be like, this is one of the smartest guys about football I've ever been around. And, and how he implements science and, and how he gets away from some of the archaic thoughts that people used to have in this game. He's one of the biggest innovators, and, and people will talk about that. People will tell you that. Um, and, and, but yet we view him as a guy, oh, he just didn't work in the NFL, which is nuts to me, right? It, it's nuts. He just unfortunately didn't have the right environment to make it work. But he went 10-6 and six in back-to-back years before going 6-9. and nine. I mean, they won the NFC East his first year there and, yeah. and go to the playoffs. Like, I know they got bounced in the wild card round, but still, it's like he, he was 20-12. and, and 12 in his first two years, and then he, he's hovering around 500. They're still in the, in the potential division hunt. I believe Washington won it in 2015. And it's like, it just it blows my mind how you know people thought like, oh, well, you can't coach because of what he had in San Francisco, which was an absolute debacle in that one year. I'm not sure he wouldn't hang around there anymore either. So anyway, the only reason I bring that up is because it's just another example of like an offensive mind, the guy who's got a losing record as head coach, that I think the second you bring him back, you know, he'd be respective. He could be um, effective in the right situation, circumstance. And that's what you're talking about. The roster, who you have, and your ownership and their patience with everything. Yeah, and Chip got greedy with personnel, just like Josh McDaniels in Denver. I mean, jo- you know, Josh had total control and was, you know, tra- traded. Co- I mean, I, you know, you know more of this than I do, but I mean, you know, like uh, Alfon- the, the Alfonso Smith trade that he made in the, uh, you know, the second round that, that, you know, to deal for the Wake Forest cornerback. Anyway, uh, let's move along. Vic Fangio hired by the Chicago Bears. Vic Fangio. Not devastatingly handsome. I don't mean to dog Fifangio, but you know he's not—he's not Cliff Kingsbury. What do you think about he, he not, shouldn't be? He shouldn't be. What he's do you think? Defensive coordinator, man. Those guys have to look like you know grizzly and kind of like they're mean, you know. Yeah. What do you think about Vic Fangio's hire by the Denver Broncos, not the Chicago Bears? Hired away from the Chicago Bears. I was saying that as my son walked up here into my office with a threatening glare, like he was going to shout into the podcast microphone. <laughs> I'm sure you deal with that often. He had a mischievous uh, look in his eye, body. Brady. He had a mischievous look in his eye like, hey, I'm here to wreck stuff. What's up? <laughs> you know, it's about time. Vic Fangio's coached the NFL for 32 years, uh, 19 years as a coordinator. So, holy cow, look at all that experience. I also find it interesting that, like, it's the exact opposite candidate that you had before with Vance Joseph, a guy who barely had any experience calling defense. Did stick with the defensive side of the ball, but, you know, if they bring back Kubiak, clearly – they want to have experience on that side because I think John Elway knows how important, like maybe the next year or two are. He's got to get this higher right. Mm-hmm. They've got to find a quarterback. Like there's so many things that I think he's failed at, with the exception of bringing in Peyton Manning, drafting Von Miller, and then maybe a couple of other pieces. But I don't even know how much of that was Elway as much as it was Peyton Manning. You know, getting some of those free agents to want to come over to that roster. Uh, but but anyways, I think it could work. I mean, look, the strength of that team is their defense. So to have that sort of defensive mind, if you can get them playing at a Super Bowl caliber like they were back when they won it with Peyton, that's going to give you your best shot regardless of who's that quarterback. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm glad he got a shot. I'm glad he gets a chance to do it. 
I just I, I just hope that if it is Kubiak, I hope those guys can get Denver operating back at um, that kind of playoff level. They're obviously they're a good team. They've got some good pieces. It'd be nice to see them back in the fray. Do you think Do you think it's weird that he took the job knowing that he had to work with Kubiak like that, or is it you know he's like, look, I don't know when I'm going to get my shot. I'm going to do it now. Like all these offensive kids with, with their with their devastating good looks are getting these jobs. I just got I got to take something now. I mean, like, I mean, would you be bothered by that about you know having to knowing that you're basically a you know two headed monster or whatever they're calling it in Denver? I don't know. It's a weird situation. It seems like. No, actually, I, I'd, I'd gladly accept that. Look, you get a pay bump. You're yeah. only focused on the defense. You let Gary take care of the offense. Like, it's a perfect scenario. Yeah. You've been a coordinator for 19 years. Like, why do you want to have to deal with all the headaches that come along with an offense, right? Deal with prima donna wide receivers and all that. You don't have to deal with that. So right. you let Gary take care of that. You take care of the defense. It's the same thing as Sean McVay and Matt Nagy, you know, did what he had last year. So I think it's awesome because he gets the pay bump and the title and he gets only focused on the defense. So, uh, that that to me is is a it's a solid eye, it's a great hire, but it does speak to this. Given how long it took him to finally get a shot to be a head coach, Mike Zimmer finally took him a long mm-hmm. time to get a shot to be a head coach. I know Chris Richard's probably going to be the hire in Miami, and he's a young defensive guy. Wait, is that is that? Um, you but think... by and large, sorry, that... you keep going, keep going. I'll ask. I'll ask after you get done. Go ahead. No, by and large, I mean if you're a young defensive guy like quality control or maybe a position coach. Like, you need to go up and walk to your head coach and be like, hey, you guys got a spot on offense. I can just transition <laughs> over because I want to be a head coach and it's not going in the right direction. And, look, philosophically, here's, here's why it's easy. The NFL is an offensive league. The NFL's most important position, the most expensive position is quarterback. So it makes sense that you want to ensure that your head coach is on the same page and is going to be able to allow your quarterback to play at his best. So it makes sense that – you tend to get more offensive guys than defensive guys right now. That's the that's the, the trend that we're in. Um, you just said that you think Chris Richard's going to be the guy in Miami. That that is news. I do to me. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, as far as what I've heard is, it sounds like they're moving in that direction. He's been incredibly impressive in his interviews. Uh, and remember, this this was a guy who was defensive coordinator at the Seattle Seahawks. Didn't work out. Uh, before this year, which he's done a great job with the secondary for the Dallas Cowboys. But, uh, you know, previously when he was with the Seattle Seahawks, he was interviewing back then when he was there, DC. Uh, couldn't really keep it all together. I don't know how much of that was him and how much of that was some of the pieces that they were working with. Um, and, and they've obviously gone through a ton of turnover, but you see what he's done with the secondary this year in Dallas. Uh, and they've been solid. So, a uh, very impressive young man. Uh, I, I think he's going to have the chance to really help turn around that defense, which, Look, that's been, that's been an issue for them, right? I mean, they just they haven't been able to play enough consistent football defensively to give them a chance in games. And, yes, they've got a lot of other stuff they've got to figure out, um, but he would be a guy that I think would be – you know, he's a, he's a 180 from what you had with Adam Gase. He's going to handle the pressure of that situation well down there with the media and the ownership, and I think he'd be able to handle that roster with how he communicates uh, and, and coaches guys. Uh, so I, I think it, it it could be something that works, and he's kind of the guy that I'm here to get that job. Okay, uh, I'm going to write a, when I write a story on Thursday. I'm going to write I'm going to use that as like the tagline. Like I'm going to write like like Brady thinks Chris Richard. You don't mind reporting that on this podcast, do you? you know what I mean, like you're not saying he's well, got not, the job. Not, you're not saying he's got the job. You're just saying I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying he's got the job. I think he'd be a good candidate for the job. Yeah, and and the and the Dolphins. Yeah, I, I'm not going to hang you out to dry. It, you know, don't don't you worry about that. Uh, your, well, old, your old pal, however, however you want to put it, but I'm stunned. That's what I'm hearing. Okay, no, 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 no. I got your old pal Brinsel to take care of you. Uh, really quickly, Freddie Kitchens, and then uh, we'll get to these matchups. I should just segue to the Cowboys Rams, and then we'll come back to Freddie Kitchens. Let's just do that. Cowboys and Rams are playing each other. Actually, you know what? We're gonna take a quick break first, and then we'll talk Cowboys and Rams. Y'all new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads ensure you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drives you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. Whether you're tailgating out in the dirt lot, Carter Finley, shout out Carter Finley, or whether you're whitewater rafting, taking the entire family on an adventurous 
trip. Maybe you're out camping at Mount Rogers. I used to go as a kid. I wish my parents had a Hyundai Santa Fe. The Hyundai Santa Fe is perfect for your family outing. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Okay, so the Cowboys and Rams are playing each other. Chris Richard, you mentioned that defense has been really good. Additionally, we've seen with the with the with the Cowboys and in the Rams in this matchup, I think that Chris Richard has experience against the Rams. What do the Cowboys have to do to upset Sean McVay and Los Angeles? Well, the first thing is they've got to figure out unique ways of exploiting their offensive line, their protection. Now, they naturally have the talent up front to do that. And granted, it's not something Chris Richard's going to have control over. Besides his intimate knowledge, it's still Rod Marinelli calling the defense. So, um, but they've got to figure out a way of getting pressure on Goff. If they can stop the run, right, stymie Todd Gurley, and, and get pressure on Goff, he becomes very average. And I think we saw that towards the end of the year in particular versus the Philadelphia Eagles, who don't have a very good secondary. At least they haven't played well this year. But in that matchup, when Fletcher Cox becomes all of a sudden a big issue, and Michael Bennett and, and Timmy Jernigan and some of the rest of the pieces start to have their impact on the game, next thing you know, those guys start playing a lot better. So uh, it's going to come down to if they can <clears throat> take advantage of their matchups versus the Rams offensive line and stymie the running game with Gurley, with and then they're going to have a chance. And as much as that's on the defense, it's also on the offense for the Cowboys, A, to make sure that they hold on to the football, own the time of possession, no turnovers, and make sure that, that they kind of shorten the game and run the football with Zeke Elliott as well as Dak Prescott. Because, you know, even though the Rams have these studs on the interior with Sue and Donald, they haven't been very good against the run. And so this is a real opportunity where the offense can help out the defense uh, by maintaining possession, you know, wearing out the Rams' defense, and then frustrating the Rams' offense by keeping them on the sidelines. Okay. Um, do you think that Sean – how will Sean McVay approach this? Because to me, the Cowboys – I mean, like, we saw this in the Seattle game. So stupidly, I mean, Brian Schottenheimer and Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, all of them just ran the ball over and over and over and over and over again into this great Dallas front. How will Sean McVay manage to avoid doing that, or will he be able to establish a run with Todd Gurley in their offensive line against this Cowboys front seven? I, I have a hard time believing that. I feel like he almost has to come out and pass first to set up the run, right? Maybe that could be one thing you look at. I mean, look, this is a fast flow defense, and I think they excel because their interior players, Woods and the rest of the crew on the inside, they do a good job of keeping the offensive line from climbing to the second level. So when you look at the impact of Van Der Esch and Jalen Smith, those guys can roam free and they run really well sideline and sideline. So they can match up with Todd Gurley, um, you know, whether it's in coverage or once he, he, once he gets out in the open space. So, you know, that's, that's easy for them to do. But when you all of a sudden start having some of their guards like Roger Sappel climbing up on them, different story, right? So that's going to be the biggest key is, is how well the double teams for their offensive line can work up to the next level. Uh, and if they can take care of their business, that's going to be the first thing. The other thing is, uh, you talked about you know using the pass to open things up. That's going to be part of it. I, I think they they like to utilize the play action pass game. I think that's going to be a big piece of this offense and this matchup. Uh, and then the final thing is misdirection runs. Right, try to get them moving side to side. You know, you used to call it you know jab or different counters, those sorts of plays where you can get those guys in a position where your your offensive linemen don't have to work quite as hard to get angles. That's going to be a huge piece of it. So uh, to me, it's really accomplishing those three things if they want to run the football. I think, you know, part of the interesting thing of this matchup is they're in a similar spot they were a year ago. Now, granted, they're not playing the wild card round, but they hadn't played the Atlanta Falcons uh, last year. They hadn't played them the entire year. They made them in the, the wild card round. They sat their starters week 17, at least the, those that they could, sure. arrested some of the other guys, and they got off to a really slow start. Two, three and outs. They had a botched punt. Uh, Farrell Cooper fumbled on the kickoff return. They were down 13 nothing like that, and they never were really able to overcome that. And I just wonder with another week off, even though it's the second time around, but an unfamiliar opponent considering they hadn't played Dallas this year. So, you know, you, you've got two weeks to prepare, which should help you. And given it's the second time around for Goff and McVay, you know, they should take care of business. But I don't know. I mean, this offense hasn't operated the same since they lost Cooper Cup. Todd Gurley's not 100%. So I think if Dallas goes in there and plays as good as I think they're capable of, this could very much be a ball game, and it's going to feel like a home crowd environment there. Yeah, I, I like the Cowboys in this spot, and I am stunned that the line is Rams minus seven. That's so high. 
I, I, I was, I was just surprised by that. I like the Cowboys, uh, straight up and against the spread. And I, I think the Cowboys were surprised and probably make me look stupid at some point. Uh, the India, the other game on Saturday, the Indianapolis Colts at the Kansas City Chiefs. Are the Indianapolis Colts a nightmare matchup for Kansas City? I don't know about a nightmare matchup. I think if they had the type of defensive front, at least from a personnel standpoint, uh, maybe a little bit of a different story, but, you know, look, if you look at the way they can control the ball throwing as well as running the football now with the way the offensive line's playing, I think they can hold up versus the edge rushes for KC, and, and Andrew Luck will pick them apart. I mean, the secondary struggled. They haven't been able to stop the run consistently. So I think the Colts will be able to do whatever they want, and, and that e- equates to potentially a shootout. The difference is that, like the Colts' style of defense. Like, Everflus plays kind of more of a softer type of coverage. I don't want to say bend but don't break because they definitely take their chances, but they try to use you know different forms of cover too. They try to you know disguise with different coverage and then run timely blitzes. Um, so it'll be interesting to see you know how uh, the Colts can hold up versus the Chiefs because they struggle towards the end of the year, not having Kareem Hunt's an issue. And I think teams are starting to realize like if you can implement that strategy of keeping Mahomes within the pocket and not letting him get outside where we've seen him be able to make you know, big time plays downfield because you can't, can only you can only cover Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey for so long. But if you can keep him within the pocket, get some hits on him, get some pressure on him, that's your best bet. You know, stop the run and get some hits and pressure on him, and then and, you know, and really force everything to kind of funnel to Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. Make make the two other guys, whether it's Conley or, or Watkins, beat you. Like that's going to be your best chance. So this this have the making of a shootout to me. Uh, and, and I think the Chiefs probably will win, but it could be a slim margin. I wouldn't be shocked at all if the Colts won. Uh, 57 is the over-under. You think they both get to 30? I think they do. I, I think they do, too. It just depends on the weather report. That, that's the only wild-card factor. And, and just from playing there for a year, you, we could look this far out, and it could drastically change in, in 24 hours before the game. Interesting. So, uh, that's the hard thing. It's, it's hard even to look at that and then figure out like what it's really going to look like. Former professional quarterback and Kansas City meteorologist Brady Quinn, uh, Los Angeles Chargers at the New England Patriots. Everybody's betting on the Chargers. The the snow is probably not coming now. I mean, of course, it could change. You know, like like snow does. Um, it looks like it's going to be 30 degrees or lower there, like tw- high of 29 on game day. Tom Brady, 10 and 2, straight up in 30 degrees or less or, or lower uh, games in the playoffs at home, but he's only 5, 6, and 1 against the spread. What, uh, what chance do you give the Chargers of beating them? And do you think the Chargers maybe are the better team? Uh, I think the Chargers have a chance of covering. I definitely give them a chance to beat them because they've got that formula that we've seen to be effective versus the Patriots in the past, right? A quarterback who could sling it uh, just about as well as Tom Brady can. And, and this is the most complete team I think Philip Rivers has, has ever had. Look, wow. if you look at the fact that he, he's got a running back, though, it's not LT back there, but Melvin Gordon's effective. Eckler can help out too. Um, and, and then you look at the pass catchers. So you got Hunter Henry back. He could be a potential weapon or X factor in this game. You got Antonio Gates, who's not what he once was, maybe back in 06, 07 when they were making the playoffs when, when he was in his prime, but he's still reliable. Mike Williams for big plays. Keenan Allen is your go-to guy. Travis Benjamin's got all that speed. And Tyrell Williams has pitched in, too, and his offensive line's playing well. So considering they've got all of that, Philip Rivers playing really good football, some of the best in his career, and you're going up against the New England Patriots defense that was 2-2 two and two in the last four weeks, when typically they just are blowing the doors off of people to finish the season. You know, yeah, I like their chances of being able to hang around. And, oh, by the way, he's got a defense that can give the football back. Uh, Ingram, Bosa off of the edge. You look at their secondary players, they have as much athleticism as anyone with Derwin James, Desmond King, Adrian Phillips, Casey Hayward. I mean, they got some studs there. So, you know, I think this, this team is the best that Philip Rivers has, has had and will give him the best chance of beating Tom Brady uh, in New England or in Foxborough. And then beating Tom Brady is something that Philip Rivers has never been able to accomplish. Uh, but here's the key. They've got to start off fast. If New England jumps out in front of them and they all of a sudden take control of this game, that, that's exactly what they want to do. And that's what, unfortunately, I think would be the demise for Phillip Rivers and the Chargers. He's going to be put in positions where he's got to throw his way back. We've seen him have a tendency to you know, make poor decisions or force things that lead to turnovers. And that's what New England lives off of. They live off of getting ahead of you fast at home and then getting turnovers and being able to seal the rest of the game. It may be tight. But still, that's how they win, and I still think that's the way they'll end up winning this game. Um, okay, and finally, 
I just read this on Twitter. This is incredible. Um, this is Saints, Saints and Eagles are playing, right? This is John DeTrinis, who is a, um, a New Orleans bankruptcy attorney. That's weird. But he tweeted this. I don't know if this is real or not. So maybe it's worth mentioning. He wrote, yesterday, four armed guards entered the Saints locker room with coach Sean Payton wheeling the Lombardi trophy on top of $225,000 in cash. He then said, y'all want this? Win three effing games, and the locker room erupted. That's the Super Bowl bonus for those players. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I'd like to think that's true. That seems like Sean something. Uh, oh, that's 100% true. Yeah, that's 100% true. <laughs> that seems like something Sean Payton would do. And I don't know if you know this, but human beings and football players and uh, adult males in their mid-20s to mid-30s, motivated by cash. So... I mean that that matters, right? Like the playoff bonus, the like you're you're as a football player, you're not just out there playing for the love of the game. You you were out there playing for the cold hard cash, weren't you, Brady? <laughs> well, the truth is, you're uh, you're actually making less than you do in the regular season. So your your game checks. No, 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 but you get the bonus. Guys, yeah, you get the bonus for the Super Bowl. It, hey, bud. Just so you know, most guys make more on their salary during the week, their biweekly salary. So I'm just letting you know. Unless you win the Super Bowl, and even with some of the bonuses and all that, some guys still make more in their game checks a week. So that's why, again, it, it's nice. It's obviously additional cash that you're not factoring in. Um, but if you're looking at what you get from, like, the wild card and divisional round wins, it's still not as much money unless you have certain bonuses within your contract, which not many guys do. Maybe the, maybe the quarterback, the coach, um, or some other players, depending on performance. Uh, but still, I mean, that, that's – the bonuses aren't quite as big as you think, but nonetheless, again, you're still so you're, playing the game so for money. So, so yeah, you, of course. So you have, uh, you have given me a Kansas City meteorology, meteorologist uh, update, and you have scoffed at the notion of two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Just to be clear, um, I'm not scoffing at the notion of it. I'm just saying, you know, he's he's doing some addition there when you're adding up the winning the three games. You know, yeah, you're adding right, up right, the right. salaries of, of what you're making off of that, and then maybe if you have some bonuses, you know, as a part of it. So yeah. Uh, you know, look, again, I'm not trying to take away from it. I'm just saying people will tell you that there's veteran players who have said, like, yeah, we're not going to win the Super Bowl. I don't really care if we win or not in the wild card round because there's a lot more risk of injury when you play that game and you're not making as much in that game. It's just it's a little dirty secret that, like, no one wants to talk about, but it's true. Right. No, I, I feel you there. Um, yeah, risk-reward and whatnot. What do you think? Can the Eagles win this game? The Saints – under Sean Payton, some mind-blowing stats for you really quickly. The Saints under Sean Payton and Drew Brees. 5-0 and straight up and in home playoff games. 5-0 and against the spread in home playoff games. The over is hit in every single one of those games. And in Sean Payton's last 11 games with, with a bye, including since 2009, including one playoff game, a divisional round game against the Cardinals, and the, the other 10 games being, of course, the regular season byes, he is... Nine and two in those games, ten and one against the spread, with a plus one hundred and sixteen point differential in those games. I kind of think they're going to murder the Eagles. I think there's definitely a chance to the line would tell you that. I think it's eight points last time I yep. looked. Uh, it was as high as nine at one point. Yep. Uh, but here, here, here's why maybe they won't. I think it's because it comes down to matchups. Uh, the weakness of the Saints team really is their secondary, although they have gotten a lot better. If you look at after the addition of Eli Apple. And over the last eight games, as Marcus Davenport has continued to grow and improve to opposite of Cam Jordan, you know, they're giving up a little less than 230 yards on average passing yards a game. So they've even improved. They've always been a good rush defense. So uh, because of that, I, I think you give them a chance, you give them a chance to blow the doors off of Philly, but you know how this, this story goes. It, it's Nick Foles again, man. This team is playing inspired. They believe in him. He gets the ball out of his hand quick. Alshon Jeffries making plays. Golden Tate is that a different element to this offense with Nelson Aguilar. Zach Ertz is the most underrated tight end in the NFL. He never gets enough credit for how good he is. Dallas Godard is starting to play an impact. Sproles is there. I mean, they've got some weapons now. And the biggest key is the offensive line has been playing better. Since Foles took over, they've really gotten into the swing of things. So if they can match for you know points as far as what I think the Saints are going to do to the Philly, uh, Philadelphia Eagles secondary, uh, I think they can hang in there. I, I really do. But uh, I should say there's a chance of that. Uh, and obviously there's a chance of them pulling off the upset at the NFL. But I don't, I don't see that happening. I think the Saints are going to win. I think the Saints uh, could win by a, by a pretty big margin. That's more likely than not the case. I tell you what I like in that game, the over. 50 and a half. 51 points. That's low. How is that so low? Yeah. I, lo- 
I like that too, and I think it, it could be in large part done by the Saints more so than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, if, if you're looking at the, the the metrics of it, both secondaries have given up a bunch of yards, so I think there could be uh, some some big plays there. I mean, I think if the Eagles get you 21 points, you're feeling pretty good about that over, and I think the Eagles can get to 21. All right, uh, we are. Wrapping up this, we're done with this podcast. We finished it. We're done. Uh, I'm gonna go, uh, teach, like, teach my son how to play basketball because I'm an elite athlete. I'm sure you're gonna go do something that, you know, we elite athletes do, whatever it is. You may work out, uh, you know, ride, ride jet ski. You get someone else, just pay someone else to teach him. You do not want him learning from you. He's, 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 I'm, he's going to basketball camp. I'm just giving him some primers. He doesn't want to learn from me. I'm I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I am terrible at basketball. I can't shoot worth a lick. Uh, that's it. Let's get out of here. Watch Brady Quinn on CBS Sports HQ. Follow him on Twitter at 3RD underscore goal. And uh, we'll talk to you next week, buddy. Sounds good, brother. See you then. Enjoy the game. Likewise.